Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Lara Marlowe has been a foreign correspondent for the Irish Times for 22 years, reporting from locations including Algeria, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Iran, Gaza, the Central African Republic and Georgia, from where she covered that country's brief war with Russia 10 years ago. She was Washington correspondent for the first term of Barack Obama's presidency and is a frequent guest on our podcast in our current role as Paris correspondent. We rarely get a chance to talk to Lara here in studio, however, and as she's spending a week with us here in the newsroom, we thought it was an opportunity that was too good to pass. So, Lara, you're very welcome. Uh, how, Thank you, Chris. How's the week in the newsroom going? Uh, great. I was up in Drogheda yesterday uh, covering the floor which is quite a change from Gaza or Iran or the Central African Republic. Um, but it was, a, it was a great experience. And what really impressed me is the, the reach of Irish culture the, when you realize that um, there are 35,000 card-carrying members um, around the world, of people belonging to Irish cultural organizations, listening to and playing uh, traditional music um, it's very impressive, and it's, it's to my mind, it's comparable to, say, the Alliance Française or the British Council or the Goethe Institute that the Germans do, but it's much more low-profile and relaxed and just fun. Great. Well, we look forward to reading your report on the fly. Um, now, coming back to France, where you're, you're currently based, you have, in fact, covered four French presidencies, those of Jacques Chirac, Nicolas Sarkozy, François Hollande and Emmanuel Macron. You also interviewed Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, another former president. And of course, you remember the Mitterrand presidency very well, I'm sure. So what would you say have been the, the constants in French policy and politics and, and, and what has changed? I think the French see themselves as a unique country in the world. They're, they're a country apart. They have a sense of grandeur, as General de Gaulle called it. And they feel that they, they still feel they have a civilizing mission. They are often talk about their universalism, for example. And, and that hasn't changed. And every president that I've covered has tried to appeal to that, that sense of specialness that the French have. Uh, at the same time, they're being brought down by globalization, like all Western developed countries, and that it sits very badly with them. They don't, they don't want to have their standard of living dragged down. They don't want to compete with workers in Thailand and Morocco and Mexico. Uh, and they're being dragged kicking and screaming uh, into the present-day world by President Macron. Uh, Sarkozy tried to do it and sort of gave up. Uh, it was interesting, during the presidential campaign last year, Macron said that the greatest danger that he would face as president was paralysis, like François Hollande. And actually, like Nicolas Sarkozy, and even like Jacques Chirac, every French president whom I've observed has at some point just come to a grinding halt. Uh, which Chirac did after the 2005 referendum on the European Constitutional Treaty. Um, Sarkozy did just because of uh, strikes, labor unions, that sort of thing. He did some reforms, also because of the economic crisis in 2008. That, that really um, stopped what he was trying to do. And Hollande basically never even really tried. Now, Macron is off to a good start. He reformed the labor code last year. Uh, he stood up to the SNCF uh, railway strike this year and prevailed and won. Um, the, the railway workers are having their pension system reformed and, and so on. Uh, but he 
crashed into this massive scandal last month in July over what is, was known as the Benalla affair uh, after his bodyguard turned uh, security advisor, top security man, whatever you want to call him, who uh, beat up a couple of protesters at a march on May Day. Um, and I think you know the story pretty yeah, well. And he was essentially, he was seen as acting very slow. His response was very slow. He was Exactly. Um, well, Macron, the, the scandal, even though it happened on, on the 1st of May, was not known about until Le Monde news, newspaper identified Alexandre Benalla as the man who was beating up the protesters, uh, which in a way is quite damning because it, it, it sort of means that the video was on YouTube and on social media. And it sort of means that as long as... Um, French police beat up uh, unknown protesters or unknown policemen beat up protesters. Nobody pays any attention. It's more or less taken as normal at protest marches. But when it came out that the man who was, um, you know, manhandling these two protesters was actually the top security guy at the Elysee, there was an enormous scandale. And Macron, instead of immediately reacting, which is what he should have done, uh, waited for five days, five days of silence, during which the opposition, both the extreme left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and the extreme right, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, you know, screamed about uh, abuse of executive privilege and why did Alexandre Benalla have um, an official car and an official apartment and his own office at the Elysee and a weapons permit and... Uh, why was he treated this way? And this was favoritism and cronyism and so on and so forth. And, and Macron was accused of, of all, all sorts of things and the rumors really took off. And so when eventually, five days later, he spoke uh, at a gathering of his supporters and said, um, I am responsible for this. Uh, and he said, uh, Benalla does not have the nuclear codes. Um, Benalla is not my lover because, as you know, there are always these these rumors about his sexuality and so on. Um, but Benalla did live. You mentioned did he did he live in the in the apartment that Mitron kept his, in, in the building? In we the don't building. I, I, okay. probably not. The, yeah, I was going to say he's, he's his mistress and his and his secret daughter as it was at the time. Exactly, in, in, exactly. It's an annex of the Elysee next to the museum on the Quai Branly. Uh, it's very. Um, sort of palatial residence overlooking the Seine, you know, with a view across the river and so on. But he, he did have an apartment in that building, yes. And I, my reading of it is that Macron made a very serious error of judgment. Um, he was, you know, he went from being a minister, well, the minister for the economy, but only in office for six months or so, uh, having never been elected to political office, having formed his own political party just a year earlier, he was sort of rocketed from this relative inexperience to being president of the republic in just one year. And he didn't really have the sort of support system and the experienced people around him that a uh, more longer-serving politician would have. So he took along with him all the people who'd been around him during the campaign, who he trusted, who'd earned his loyalty, and they were promoted very far, very fast. And I think this is what happened with Alexandre uh, Benalla, who's only 26 years old, who was just a, a poor kid, um, son of a Moroccan immigrant from the housing projects in Rouen. And the, the power that he got by being in Macron's 
entourage seems to have gone to his head. And do you think this misjudgment that Macron made was just a failure to recognize how serious the situation was or was it a, a loyalty to Benalla? Because it was amazing when the photo agencies went looking for photographs and you go back through the years and this guy Benalla was really always by his side in, in it was his secu- bodyguard. Security, security detail and he was there everywhere with them. So presumably they did have a very close working relationship. I think it was both uh, because there was another guy who was a, a close friend of Benalla's who'd actually taught Ben Nala, trained him in the reserve of the gendarmerie, who was fired immediately the, the day after the, um, the, the, the May Day protest. So it, it sounds like, it seems that um, Macron, who was actually in Australia on an official trip on the day, um, he, well, he was his, his chef de cabinet at the Elysee, made the decision to fire the other guy. But because Benalla was so close to Macron, Benalla had the keys to the Macron's uh, house in Le Touquet, their weekend holiday residence. And that's how close he was to them. And as you say, there are many, many photos of them on ski slopes, cycling, tennis courts, uh, whatever. Yes, I think loyalty was part of it. But I think Above all, he just didn't realize how serious it was. And and I think there was also the assumption that nobody would ever recognize Benalla on the videos. Uh, he was wearing a riot police helmet. It's hard to recognize somebody who's wearing a helmet very often. And, you know, kind of a heavy built guy with a, with a beard, you know, that's a fairly common sort of look. Um, so I think the aliases just thought it would it would go unnoticed that he would never be identified. And they didn't imagine the kind of scandal it would create. And is that controversy over now or will it resurface when the political, the, the holiday period ends as well? Well, my experience in covering Macron so far is that his opponents don't have much to beat him with. And every mistake he has ever made is dragged out over and over and over again uh, and, and raised every time there's, there, there's a grievance. Uh, so, yeah, I think it will be brought up over and over again. It will be added to any other misstatement. I mean, there was a, a silly example over the summer. He, um, in a, a meeting at the Elysee, said, we spend a crazy amount of dough. He used the French word pognon, which is slang for dough or money, uh, on social programs and it doesn't work. And his staff actually tweeted this video of him saying this. And immediately this was jumped upon as crassness by the president that he would say, talk about social spending in that way. And at the same time, Brigitte Macron was spending half a million euro on new new China for the Elysee. And at the same time, he and Brigitte were building a swimming pool at Bregançon, which was the fort on the Mediterranean where they were spending their summer holidays. And so on. So, so the fact that he would talk in such a a lighthearted way about social spending using a slang word was contrasted with with these things. And that was the big story for a whole week this summer. Uh, so everything he, every the slightest mishap or m- misspoken word is used to beat him every time you can be sure of it. But he does seem to have an aloofness about him, doesn't he? And he, he is open to that accusation that he doesn't really, you know, kind of understand the concerns of working class people. Well, he, he's from a relatively modest background. His, his parents were both doctors with the public health service. I, I've seen his house in Amiens, which is, is a, a bungalow, two-story bungalow, but in not a particularly glamorous or luxurious district. 
Um, so he, he's not he's not from a really privileged. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, if you like. And his his um, grandparents were from extremely modest backgrounds. But he went to the most elite schools in France. He went to the École Nationale d'Administration. He went to Sciences Po. He has a doctorate in philosophy. And most of all, actually, the, 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 the worst um, strike against him in the minds of his opponents is he was a banker at Rothschild, which is the most exclusive investment bank in the world, um, you know, a, a, a haven of very large fortunes. He worked there for four years. And he learned he earned huge commissions, you know, multi-million euro commissions on on deals that he did there. And the left in particular will never, ever forgive him for that. And how do you think his presidency is going in terms of the major policy objectives he set for himself? So you mentioned there the, the outset, the fairly radical labor market reforms, for example, and he was going to take on the unions and all of that. How, how is that going for him? He's actually so far succeeded at everything he has started to do. Uh, now, he had to postpone one reform this summer. He wants to reform uh, the parliament. He wants to reduce the number of deputies in the National Assembly very drastically and the Senate by about a third. And they are fighting it, of course. Uh, and this battle was just shaping up in the National Assembly when the Benalla affair broke. And they, the deputies basically gave up uh, debating this constitutional reform because of the Benalla affair. So that's been postponed more or less indefinitely. In the autumn, he's set to start um, reforming the retirement re re uh, pension regime, which will be very inflammatory, uh, and the unemployment regime, also very inflammatory, because France is the most generous system in the world. Um, I have a friend my age who actually earns more on an un unemployment than she did uh, before she lost her job, and, and she will until uh, for the next five years, actually. I mean, it's, it's just incredibly generous. So those things are slated, um, you know, for the autumn. Every time Macron has started an important reform, uh, commentators have predicted disaster, failure, the country will come to a halt, uh, he can't do it, it's impossible, everyone else has failed. That was the case with the labor reform, that was the case with the railways, and he has managed it. But um, every time. So will he eventually hit a, a, a bump that he can't get over? You know, it's possible, but so far, so good. And what about in Europe? I mean, much was made early in his presidency of the, his intention to push for a greater and faster European integration. He stands contrasted with that of, was contrasted with that of Angela Merkel, who's more of the pragmatist. Um, Am I right? We don't seem to hear as much about that now. Um, has he backed off on that in some respects or is it just is that going to come back no, again? No, I think he's kind of run into the immovable force of um, the, the other European leaders who have been very, very slow to sign on to his um, his project, to his initiative. And the one thing he did manage was these uh, citizens consultations um, in every country except Hungary, I think think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, basically most of all of the EU, and I, I don't think Britain did them because they're, they're leaving, of course, uh, but he, he did convince other leaders to do that. Uh, he was very, very keen on reform of the Eurozone. He wanted a Eurozone parliament, a Eurozone finance minister, um, and a Eurozone budget. And this was not to the liking of the Germans. 
Uh, now, they've said recently that they will agree to a budget for the Eurozone, but the Macron envisages uh, a huge European budget. He wants everyone to to increase their contributions to the EU budget, and nobody else wants to do it. Uh, so that's, that's a big problem for him. Uh, the other area where he is really trying is migration. And that, as you know, is, is probably the most explosive uh, issue in the EU right now. Um, France is not it promised to take only 24,000 migrants when, when people were talking about quotas and, and so on. And uh, polls show that a majority of French people already think there are too many foreigners, too many migrants in France. So he's not pushing it. He's not having initially praised Angela Merkel when he when she said that um, you know refugees were welcome. Um, she's back down on that now too. That that was back in 2015. Um, the the consensus throughout the EU is that these migrants must be kept out. And Macron's idea is to set up centers in North Africa, except that, for example, the Algerians don't want any centers on their territory. Uh, so, so it's a huge problem. He actually said something very controversial um, this summer, which was, you remember the Aquarius, the ship carrying migrants, and it was refused entry uh, in Corsica, which is France, of course, uh, and other ports, I think Malta also refused, and eventually it eventually landed in, in, in Spain. Was it? Spain? It landed in Spain. Yes. The Spanish Spain. accepted it, mm. uh, but Macron said that the uh, the NGOs who are fishing these poor migrants out of the Mediterranean were de facto accomplices of the traffickers, and that caused a lot of con controversy because the, the question then arises: do you, do you let them drown? What do you do with these people? And what he is saying is that they should be taken back to the coast of Libya from whence they came or, or whatever. But then the the humanitarians argue uh, they're going to be put in prison in Libya. The women get raped in Libya. They're, they're very ill-treated there. So he's still thrashing that out, both at home and on a European level. And, and But I think if he could, what he his, his vision, his, his goal is to arrive at a united, strong, clear European policy on migration. And he's working on it, and we'll see more of that in, in the um, upcoming EU summits. What about on Brexit? Do you see France playing a more um, kind of active role in negotiations as they hopefully reach a conclusion over the next couple of months? Well, the, the British certainly have perceived the French to be the toughest negotiators since the very beginning. And that was actually even the case with François Hollande. Uh, he was seen to be wanting to punish the British for, 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 for leaving. Um, but the, the official line in France is that Michel Barnier, who is, of course, French, but he is and uh, an the EU's appointed negotiator, that everything must go through him. Uh, and that the 27 remaining countries are united behind Michel Barnier. Uh, so every time there's a statement, whatever, you know, Macron is determined, they are not going to divide us. We 27 are going to remain united. And indeed, that's seen as a, as a huge success by the French, the fact that they have all remained united behind Barnier, that no one has broken ranks, even though they, they have different interests. For example, um, after Ireland, the Netherlands is the most affected country. And they haven't broken ranks. Uh, so, so that's seen as a very good thing. Uh, but yes, the, the, the French are not going to give any presents to the British. And they, you know, the British accuse them of wanting to profit from Brexit. 
I think there's an element of truth, although the French would say we are looking after our national interests. They wouldn't, um, they wouldn't express it as taking advantage of the British leaving. Um, already, property prices in Paris, for example, have gone way up because people are moving from, from London. And, you know, business people, people with money are moving from London. And, and there's much more of a market now for large, luxurious apartments, which uh, in, under Hollande, for example, were very hard to sell because money was fleeing France under Hollande. And now it's coming back into France under Macron. Now, I want to move on from France in a moment. But one thing you mentioned to me before the before we started the podcast, I was interested in. You said one of the things that has changed over the years that you've noticed is the way journalists are treated by the Elysee. Tell us something about that. Absolutely. Um, well, the, the first president who I covered very actively was Jacques Chirac. And um, it, certainly from the point of view of a jo- working journalist, those were the good old days. Uh, Chirac loved journalists. Uh, when one traveled with him, he would sit around and talk to journalists in the hotel bar in the evening. Um, it was quite amazing, the president of France, you know. And we were always welcome in the Elysee. Any big event he held, the journalists were allowed in. We were given canapes and champagne at, at the receptions and that sort of thing. And then it started to go, uh, the, actually, to, for, to my mind, the most important, useful thing was we always got uh, printouts of his speeches, uh, which when you're writing under a deadline is ex- incredibly useful to have a transcript of the president's speech. Under Sarkozy, we also got the speeches, but there were no more, no more champagne, no more canapes, no more invitations to the receptions. And Sarkozy started keeping us at a distance a bit more. And he had a more conflictual relationship with the press. And actually, I just want to stress that under Chirac, even though he treated journalists well, he got very critical coverage. Um, I don't want you to think he got an easy ride just because he was nice to journalists. Started going, getting tougher under Sarkozy. Under Hollande, um, catastrophe, no more transcripts ever of speeches, very little access to the Elysee, disorganization. That was more just a problem of the Hollande administration. And under Macron, even though um, I would say a lot of journalists, well, no, you, you can't say that because he, actually he's been very critical, criticized, partic- in particular by Le Monde, which uh, ought to according to their ethos and their their past history, you would expect Le Monde, which is the leading newspaper, to support Macron, but they have a sort of grudge against him for a story of when, when they were being sold back in 2010, he was acting as an advisor to, he was acting more or less as a double agent to two prospective buyers, to make a long story short. Anyway, going back to Macron, uh, he there's this trend now, and, and I think that leaders, Macron and also t- the Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar, are taking their cue from Donald Trump. They want to do their own media. And so they would rather record a video and put it online themselves than be interviewed by television. They would rather um, put uh, excerpts from their speech on Twitter and Facebook and so on, then make it you know easily accessible or available to 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 media. And Macron has actually kicked the media out of the Elysee Palace. We had a press room in the courtyard of the Elysee Palace, so you could go there all day and sit there all day and see who was coming and going. And the press agencies, the wire agencies, did this and said who was meeting with the president and so on. And uh, now it came out during the Benalla scandal. That was to have been 
uh, Benalla's sort of security headquarters. We, we only found that out during the scandal. But the press room was closed and moved to a side street. So the journalists can no longer see what's going on in the Elysee Palace. And the, Macron's relations with the press are, are, are quite fraught because he, he doesn't see the point of, of traditional media. He doesn't see what purpose we serve. Um, and it is also virtually impossible to get transcripts of his speeches, at least within time, uh, within your deadline. Yeah, they, will, they will put out the transcripts, but two or three days later when, of course, it, it, it's too late. So... Um, it, it's, it's not easy. It's become much harder to cover the, the Elysee than it was when I first started in France. And you, you mentioned Leo Varadkar there. And just to clarify, you're speaking there from personal experience. Yes. Um, uh, I covered uh, Tishuk Varadkar's visit to Paris last October 24th. And first he and, and Macron made a joint statement in, in one of these uh, beautiful, splendid uh, rec- receptions rooms at the Elysee. And we were to have interviewed him in the courtyard afterwards, um, myself, and I think there were four other Irish media represented there. But we were chased out by the French because Macron was receiving um, the Egyptian dictator, uh, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, um, right after after Varadkar. So we, went, we regrouped and went to the um, Irish embassy in Paris. Now, I had prior to the Tishuk arriving in Paris, requested an interview with him. Uh, His press people wanted to know on what subject, and I said his vision for Europe, because uh, Varadkar had been in office, what, since May or June then, for for months, and I hadn't heard heard him say anything at all about Europe. Macron had just made his huge European initiative speech at the Sorbonne, and I wanted to know what the Tishuk's response would this to be. His office told me he didn't have time to talk to me about Europe. Uh, At the Irish embassy, uh, his press people had set up a podium for him to stand behind. And the RTE cameraman said, what is this? This looks ridiculous, like he's just making some sort of statement to us. Get rid of this. So they took away the podium. But it was still very staged. Uh, We stood there, four or five of us, each with our microphone in hand. And we were allowed one question each for a total of five minutes with the Taoiseach on his visit to Paris. Uh, I've covered every Taoiseach since uh, John Bruton visiting Paris. And in in the good old days, we sat down in the conference room in the ambassador's office with the Taoiseach, and he gave us 15, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, depending on, on what the subjects were, how many journalists there were, and so on. So the the consideration of the importance of traditional media, when I mean um, television, radio, print, all, all of us, uh, has obviously gone down. We are not considered to be important. And I did see later um, a tweet from Tishuk Varadkar of himself on a street in Paris, recorded by one of his staff members, where he says, I have come to Paris today to see President Macron, and we have talked about X, Y, and Z. Uh, So again, he's doing his own media. He doesn't need us. Yeah, and I mean, it used to be the norm. I was a reporter here in the newsroom. I covered City when I was industry and employment correspondent. Bertie Hearn was Taoiseach, and he would turn up at every union event and every union conference. And he would do a, it would be an informal doorstep, we called it, with all the journalists for as long as you wanted. Now, quite often you would find at the end of it that he hadn't said anything. Yeah. You would think <laughs> he was saying. Problem. You would yeah. think he was saying something while you were listening to him, and then you play back the table, read your notes, and you think, well, actually, 
you know, either the grammar was so bad or he would deliberately sort of confuse things. You couldn't really make make uh, much of it. But that was that was his skill, I suppose, in in not giving anything away. He didn't, didn't want to give away. But the principle of him standing in front of journalists and asking them asking as many questions as they wanted to ask was certainly intact in those days. That Absolutely. Does seem, that does seem to be gone now, doesn't it? I, I, but I, you see, we are, a, a, we are critical of politicians. That's our job. And I don't think they like that. I don't think they, they want that objective eye and that uh, perhaps not always positive commentary. They can, they can go around it and that's what they're doing. So as I said, just, just to cover maybe look at some of the other areas you've covered in the past, uh, I mentioned you were Washington correspondent um, for the first term of Barack Obama's presidency, that's in other words, 2009 to 2013. Has all the hope that the Obama presidency generated for for liberals and progressives all over the world, has all of that evaporated now? Do you think, has it been obliterated by the presidency of Donald Trump? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, for me, also as an American citizen, these are very dark times. Um, and and it, it's stunning that a, a nation and such a great nation can go from such a period of, of total optimism and hope and, and belief in the future to... Uh, you know, comparisons with the 1930s and the rise of fascism and, and just total uncertainty and this constant, uh, at the same time, it, it's um, if it wasn't so awful, it would be entertaining to have a president who, I, I think the Washington Post said a couple of weeks ago, they have documented 4,000 lies since the beginning of Donald Trump's term in office. That's an average of seven lies a day, you know, and, and the, it, it's just, it's a, it's a circus and, and it's, um, it's very depressing. Uh, and it feels like it is, of course, the same America. Uh, but we were looking at the positive side of it during those four, those eight years, actually, because Obama was, of course, reelected. I was in Chicago on the night of his reelection, and uh, it was very moving. It was it was really powerful. And uh, Trump's election um, in November of of 2016 was equally moving, but in the opposite direction. It just it just felt like an absolute catastrophe. Um, you said there there. They are dark times. They might be even darker than you realize because I'm – can I read for you a tweet that Donald Trump put out? You might not have seen this because it, this was um, issued just before we started the the podcast. And it's um, it's about or it seems to be about Omarasa Manigault Newman, this former White House aide who was fired, has now done a book. It's a controversial book and certainly many people are disputing some of the claims in it. Um, and uh, on Monday, Donald Trump tweeted some very harsh things about her. But today, on Tuesday, he tweeted the following. Um, when you give a crazed, crying lowlife a break and give her a job at the White House, I guess it just didn't work out. Good work by General Kelly for quickly firing that dog. Um, the only question I can think Sorry. of to ask you is, did you, did you ever think we'd see the day? No, no. I never when, when I was in Washington covering Obama. I remember there was a White House correspondence dinner um, at which Donald Trump was uh, present, and he was humiliated. They, they made a lot of fun of his hair, and Obama talked about the because at the time Trump was uh, going after Barack Obama's birth certificate. He he said Obama wasn't really born in Hawaii, like he said. He was born in Kenya, therefore he had no right to be president of the United States. And this was a total fabrication, like so much of what Trump says. And so Obama made a joke about um, Trump having a fox on his on the top of his head. 
Uh, yeah, and, and he yeah. was a laughing stock. And he, yeah, he, and he absolutely humiliated him that night, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He did. And if you had told me then that a few years later Donald Trump would be president of the United States, I, I would not have believed it. But some people do think that was the moment that Donald Trump decided he really wanted to be president well, of the United States. People also say that he didn't expect to become president and that there was just total shock um, for him and for his entourage and that they were totally unprepared and that's why they, you know, so many staff changes and, and just amateurism, total amateurism in office. In, in the same way, for example, Jean-Marie Le Pen, when he made it to the second round of the, the French presidential election in, in 2002, which is a big, actually one of my biggest scoops because I, I was this, the only person to predict it. You read it in the Irish Times. Um, he, was, he was just in shock. And uh, we learned later that there was total panic because he thought, what if I actually get elected? What do we do? <laughs> you know, and, and I think there was an element of that. But uh, yeah, to have someone calling his own former employee who had the highest security clearance a dog. Um, and I believe in her book, she says he uses the N word all, all the time. This is something that's come out. Yeah. Um, now, and, and, and then say that is some of that is controversial because it's not clear has she heard these tapes herself. And I know some people have denied some of the quotes she has attributed to he them. He has so made on. racist statements in the past, though that that is indisputable. Certainly during the campaign about about Mexicans and so on. Indeed, yeah. but uh, you're a long time close observer of international politics, so you know. I suppose in a way we have to try to take a longer term view here. And I'm wondering, what do you think? Putting this in its wider context, the Trump presidency. Do you think this is a a, a moment that that will pass, or do you think he's changing politics in fundamental ways? Certainly, uh, Trump's election had an, uh, has had an effect elsewhere because we've seen um, populist nationalists coming to power in Hungary and Poland. In, uh, we've seen the new chancellor of Austria in league with the extreme right in Italy, the extreme right and extreme left working together. So it's as if the whole um, liberal democracy that we had come to believe in, that we, that you and I were taught at university to value, um, is no longer valued, is in danger. Um, nothing is ever permanent in international politics and periods of extreme darkness, like the rise of fascism in the 30s and the Second World War, eventually they end and then, you know, you have something else. So I, I hope, um, I, I see Macron as probably the best alternative to to Trump and the the illiberal democracies as we're calling them in Europe uh, because he believes in in these values that that you and I were taught to believe in um, so I, I I think there is a kind of struggle for the soul of the Western world going on uh, be, with Trump uh, embodying racism and perhaps sexism and uh, this America first mentality, this every country for itself mentality. Um, and then perhaps Macron to perhaps Merkel um, representing something else, representing uh, values of, of, of real genuine democracy and due process of law. So we'll see who wins. And um would you regard yourself as an, are you, are you optimistic about the state of the world or are you a pessimist? Well, as long as Trump sits in the Oval Office, absolutely not, because I, I think that man is capable of starting World War III tomorrow. 
Uh, he really has it in for Iran. Uh, he, if, if he bombs Iran, I think all hell will break loose in the Middle East if he attacks. Uh, we were all worried, very worried about North Korea. That's kind of rocky. I'm not sure what's going to happen since his meeting with, with uh, Kim Jong-un. Um, but he's very unpredictable, and in his very erratic nature is is what makes him so worrying. I mean, if you take someone like Merkel, she never does anything really un, unexpected. I, although you know her her positive greeting for the for the refugees for the migrants in 2015 that was po- possibly unexpected. But if you look at her background as the daughter of a Protestant pastor, as a uh, someone who grew up in, in East Germany, maybe it was all, maybe it should have been expected. Well, I'm going to park the cheerful thought about World War Three for a moment and just <laughs> maybe just ask you briefly about maybe some of the other uh, stories you've covered. And in terms of conflicts and, and, and wars you've covered, what, what was the most uh, difficult or what was the most dangerous situation you were in? There are, every war is different. Um, you mentioned Georgia at the beginning. I was on the plane with a, a Dutch cameraman called Stan Stormans. Uh, and the next day, I went up to Gori with another uh, a French radio journalist and, and a driver. And the hour before we got to Gori was the town where the was the front line. Uh, Stan Stormans had been killed on the spot hit by a shell, uh, and that it makes me shiver just talking about it now because I I had chatted with him on the plane the day before. That was just kind of a fluke, you know. It's always bad luck getting killed in a war. Um, Personally, I think probably the most terrifying thing I covered was Algeria during the 1990s when there was a civil war going on there and foreigners were specially targeted and foreigners would be um, have their throats slashed in their beds at night or um, the Islamists would come up to a, a car in traffic in the Rudy du Chmorad in, in Algiers and shoot them in the head uh, because the cars were stalled in traffic. Um, that was that was pretty terrifying. Um, being under bombardment in Baghdad um, by the Americans, of course, uh, in 2003 was um, interrupted your sleep <laughs> a lot. It was well, more or less you woke up every hour or two. Um, and the same same thing in Belgrade in 1999 when NATO was bombing the Serbs over Kosovo. But in, in a way, when when it's aerial bombardment, you say to yourself, one, the Americans are not going to hit a hotel full of journalists. Although an American tank did fire a shell at the Palestine Hotel where I was staying and killed three journalists. Um, so No, actually killed two journalists, two cameramen. The third, was, uh, who was a friend of mine, was very badly wounded. She had shrapnel in her brain. Um, but by and large, whether it's the Americans or the Israelis or NATO, they would probably rather not kill a lot of journalists. So, you know, that that's some at least it's a mental game you play with yourself. Whereas if in in situations where Westerners are specifically being targeted, uh, like in Algeria in the nineties, like my colleagues lived through in in Syria um, during the first with the rise of of Islamic State, Syria and Iraq, where uh, journalists were were singled out for kidnapping and in several cases beheading. That become that's probably the most terrifying thing. In in relation to Iraq, um, you know, we've recently had a, um, after many years of you know conflict and instability there, we've had an election very recently. Islamic State has been defeated pretty much within Iraqi territory, and so on. Um, do you think that country is finally about to enter a, a period of stability? 
I, I think that with the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the U.S. permanently dislocated the, that middle, that region, the whole region, for decades, possibly centuries to come. I, I don't see Iraq, you know, entering the, the sunlit uplands of Western-style democracy anytime soon, for sure. Uh, the you know there was a, a former U.S. ambassador um, called Galbraith. I think he's the son of the economist who who said that um, the U.S. invasion handed Iraq to Iran on a platter, and indeed that's that's more or less what happened because the majority of the country are Shia Muslims and they have long long historic and you know family cultural religious links with the Islamic Republic of Iran. So it, it was sort of it was one of the biggest blunders of the of George W. Bush's administration. You invade the country, you overthrow Saddam Hussein because he's a nasty dictator, which he was, and you give the country to the the mullahs in Iran, who you also profess to hate. And so this Iranian influence is extremely powerful. Uh, there is not really the the Kurds and who are the third largest group after the the Shia and the Sunni Muslims. Um, have come to a sort of modus vivendi with with the Shia. Uh, the Sunni um, are still very disaffected. They don't like the Shia ruling, lording it over them. Um, they many of them had actually supported Islamic State because they saw them as defending the interest of the Sunni. I I don't see them rallying to Shia, you know, Iranian-backed Shia rule anytime soon. And at the same time, the the Iranian, uh, sorry, the Iraqi leadership is being torn between Tehran and Washington because uh, Washington supports them and finances them, but so does Tehran. And now, with with the U.S. and Iran at loggerheads, uh, it's very very difficult for for the Iranians, and they're not they're meant to stop all trade with Iran, like all U.S. allies, except that they're the, the second largest uh, destination of Iranian exports. They get a third of their electricity from Iran. What are they supposed to do? And this is a country that was absolutely devastated by by a decade, more than a, a decade and a half of war. Um, no, I don't see their future as very rosy, I'm afraid. And what about, I, I, I wouldn't like to finish without asking you something about Lebanon, because you have a particular insight into Lebanon. You lived there for several years, including, I think, for the end of the, the civil war. I lived there for eight years, actually. Eight years, yeah. eight years. Um, in some ways, Lebanon is a remarkable success story, isn't it? I know it has all sorts of ongoing political problems, um, but considering it has survived, you know, having the war in Syria next door, they've taken in something like up to one and a half million refugees. This is a country which had a population of just over four million um, what about Lebanon? Lebanon is a miracle, but um, I mean, its survival is is a miracle. Uh, but it, it's not. A happy, you shouldn't see it as as a, as a happy place. I mean, it's uh, it's just this amazing combination of. I think there are seventeen religious uh, faiths in Lebanon. By the time you count the. Syrian Orthodox and the Syriacs and the Greek Orthodox and the Shia and the Sunni and the Druze and you know, and so on and so forth. So, so it it has come to us. This sort of strange form of coexistence has always existed since independence in 1943. Um, but it, it's very delicate balance. And at the moment, the the Shia are the biggest single group there too. 
they're in parliament, they're in the government. Um, the Israelis and the Americans consider Hezbollah. I'm sorry, I meant I should have said Hezbollah, who are the, the biggest political group. And they have this kind of, I mean, it's a kind of stifling form of government, really, where every, you know, it's, 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 it's sectarianism, like a, it's, it's yes. confessionalism. It's based on the president has to be a Maronite Catholic. Uh, the prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of the parliament has to be a Shiite, um, which none of us would accept in in our countries. You know, it's it's pretty scandalous to have political office determined by your religious faith, isn't it? Well, Northern Ireland, we don't have the assembly at the moment, but I mean, it's it's, it's mm, a, a system yeah, not entirely that's similar. An argument. Mm. But the the one of the big problems, the the big problem for Lebanon is that in the past all of the region's conflicts have been played out there. And that's why they had a 17-year civil war. And the Israelis to the south are a constant menace because they are in perpetual conflict with Hezbollah, who are just across the border. And, you know, it's, it's like the Gaza Strip and, 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 and Israel coexisting side by side. And it is not a happy coexistence. And it, there are always flare-ups. There are always shots fired and bombings and, and this sort of thing. So, uh, yes, you know, may Lebanon survive? We all hope so. I mean, the, the French, that's an area where the French are very influential and work very hard. It almost fell apart last November. You remember when Saad Hariri uh, was basically fired by the Saudis uh, and Macron patched it all back together. But if you have one element of this jigsaw puzzle, fall away, the whole, the whole thing is in danger of collapsing. Um, Laura, we've gone kind of way over time. I think we could talk a lot more about these topics. I do want to ask you one last question. Advice for young journalists. Have you <laughs> any? <sighs> Learn uh, new technologies, video, uh, audio, social media. That sounds like advice for old journalists. <laughs> <laughs> the new journalists, the young journalists know all that stuff already. But <laughs> the young ones know it. Yes, they do. They do. Yeah, so I, I think actually that in the same way that people are coming back to printed books, the way they they have sort of no, they haven't in, dropped e-books, but the printed book is enjoying a resurgence. I hope that print media also will. I think there will always be a place for it. And when I think of these politicians who lack regard for newspapers, especially, you know, serious newspapers of reference, I want to remind them that the newspaper is the first draft of history. And I think that in future, when historians come to write the history of Ireland, of France, of Europe, the United States, and so on, I don't believe they're going to go back and review all of Donald. Well, they will review Donald Trump's tweets because they, they are important. But I think they're going to go to the newspaper archives first. That's what that's the way it's always been done. And that's how it will be done in the future. So we perform an important function, a vital function. And I hope that we will continue to do so. Lara Marlow, thank you. That's all for this week. For more coverage of international affairs, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.